my name is Evan. I use he, him pronouns. My name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Arlo Howard. I use they, them pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits, a podcast about adaptations of the Romeo and Juliet story. Arlo, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what kind of artist you are and the sort of work that you are producing? Cool. Yeah, totally. Um, so I am an interactive and immersive theater and game maker. So I work sort of at the intersection of theater and games, things where the audience can get involved and be an integral part of the stories. I make things where we don't just turn off the lights and ask you to sit quietly at the dark where, while we art at you. I love that. And well, and you used to produce in Chicago where I used to live. And I yeah, got to see so I, a number of shows at, uh, at the company that you, uh, I believe artistic directed, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, the co-artistic director. I, I shared artistic directorship um, with of Rediscover Theater in Chicago. So did that for about seven years. Um, recently, I've moved to London and I'm working between the UK and the US, primarily between New York and London right now. So uh, you did a, a piece called Feral My Friend, which which I got to see the remount of, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about, about what that show was and what the audience experience of seeing it was? Totally. Uh, so yeah, so Farewell My Friend was an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet and Tristan and Isolde sort of mashy smashed together. Uh, we took over this uh, church sort of near the lake and had audience members roaming all throughout it. Uh, so there in the sort of second iteration of the project were 14 followable characters with complete through lines. So you could wander around the space following whoever you wanted or going between places and discovering new things. Um, so the audience experience was very much a free roaming st style of show. There were moments of specific interactivity where you could get a one-on-one -on -one experience with Lady Montague. There were a couple of moments of like direct interactivity with audience members, but a lot of it was sort of like a free roaming experience. Um, and sort of the way it developed between the initial iteration and the second iteration of it is we fleshed out those storylines. So there was more for the audience members to see in that experience. It, it feels a little bit like a thousand years ago uh, when I saw it. I don't know how it feels for you. <laughs> it feels like a whole like lifetime ago. Because <laughs> when you asked me to do this, I'm like, cool, 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 cool. I can totally do that. I started writing the show uh, with my collaborators in 2014. Wow. Is when we initially, wow. yeah. So we initially started with just like a reading of Romeo and Juliet. Just in you know, the back uh, garden of a of a pub and read through it. And sort of as we were going through, I was sort of circling things that I was excited about and like, hey, okay, this is interesting. This is interesting. And and we started to piece together what the script was going to become starting in 2014 with the initial production in 2015 and the expanded version in 2016. So, yeah, it feels like it was a while ago, but mm. it was such a great experience um, making that show and I, I learned so much about both of these stories and you know creating an immersive world well and even though it was a while ago there's some images that like still come back to me 
uh, which is one of the reasons that I was excited to talk to you about it because I, I mean, I oh. remember like like being involved in a card game with I forget which family the monsters were attacked with. I remember having uh, I think it was Tara Bouldre who played Juliet, like speaking directly to me, and I was like so like suddenly I'm so invested in this in this person's journey um, oh. because she's talking right to me. Can you talk a bit about the genesis of the project? What inspired you to to read? Uh, Romeo and Juliet in the back of a bar and when Tristan and I sold came into it? <laughs> yeah, so the initial uh, like impetus for the project is we actually had two ensemble members who were really keen to play Romeo and Juliet. It happened that like when we came down to it, they like weren't available to do the actual show, but the initial impulse was some ensemble members who really wanted to do Romeo and Juliet. And me and my collaborator, Matt, who we've been working on lots of different stuff together and were the co-artistic directors of the company at that time and us sitting down and kind of going, well, neither of us really like Romeo and Juliet, to be totally honest. And <laughs> so how can we connect to it? Because it is a story that's been done just jillions and jillions of times in oh, lots of different oh, ways, yeah. like as you very well know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we sort of sat down with it and went, well, like, how do we tell this story in a different way? Um, and we had both gotten to see some immersive stuff uh, when we were uh, studying abroad in London and a little bit in New York and sort of thought, okay, what would it be like if we made an immersive show and what would that look like? And sort of what came out of that was the idea of, because as we were doing this reading the bar, like uh, my thought was, if you know the whole story and you know everything that's happening, the actions of Romeo and Juliet don't make a whole lot of sense because you're like, oh, no, but the letter's coming to tell you that she's just faked her death. Like, it's going to be OK. And like you as the audience have information that the characters don't. So the impulsivity of their decisions f can feel childish or silly or hard to connect to. But if you are just following Romeo's story and you get to see sort of like the hell that he puts himself through in Mantua, you kind of get why he decides like this is the end. Um, and so that idea of different perspectives felt really important and made a lot of sense in terms of making it an immersive show and saying like, what if you only had the information you have? And I think that's something that is also so sort of important also on a more global scale, if that makes sense. The idea that like my lived experience is gonna be different than your lived experiences or the lived experiences of the people listening to your podcast. So we all bring these different perspectives and experiences into any particular situation and the way we'll respond to things or react is gonna be different. And for the audience members who are able to freely roam through this experience, you'll have seen things that your friend didn't. So you'll be able to say, oh no, you totally missed this part where like, you know, there was a poker game with the Capulets and they cheat all the time and hmm. they kind of suck to be around. And that's probably why Juliet, you know, is wanting to get away from her family. Like there's all of these different things that you could get from having this sort of more divided um, audience experience. And then 
The Tristan and Isolde being incorporated is, is quite funny, actually, because initially when we started talking about this, me and my collaborator, Matt, um, I had presented like the idea of Tristan and Isolde when we were talking about Romeo and Juliet and it being overdone. I'm like, well, there's this whole Tristan and Isolde story. It's quite similar, but not overdone. And he didn't really know the story. So that idea got kind of shelved. And then uh, we brought on our uh, an ensemble member um, called Sh Shana Schroden. She's amazing, an incredible actor. And she was coming on to sort of write it and create it with me and Matt. And she brought up Tristan and Isolde and bringing that, that layer in. And instantly we're like, yep, yep, that's the thing. So she really championed that story becoming a part of the experience and how that would fit together. And so from there, we sort of pulled the stories, tried to find parallels between the two stories and where we could sync those up within the experience. And if I remember correctly, the Tristan and I sold story was all told through movement. Um, yeah. Whereas the Romeo and Juliet was more, I guess, more traditionally performed using a lot of Shakespeare's text. Uh, yeah. So we used... Um, we felt like that was going to be a nice balance in terms of figuring out how to parallel them. Having the Rome, the Romeo and Juliet, the Shakespeare text, since we have that, we have that to work with. And since Tristan and Isolde, since we wanted to make Tristan and Isolde's story paralleled to it, and there aren't any like as many clear parallels as one would think. And so making it a text a textless experience and entirely movement-based allowed us to find more of those resonances. Um, and in like the initial version of the experience, there were more things of uh, Tristan and Isolde almost being these ghost-like characters that would sort of nudge Romeo and Juliet together. Hmm. Um, so there was these Ooh. ideas of ripples through time is a lot of the things that we were playing with and how the past can uh, affect the present. And there was this beautiful moment at the very end of the show where um, we have this whole motif of the cup because there's this cup that Tristan and his old drink from that is the poison cup of love and they each drink from it. Um, and Romeo and Juliet drink from it. So they, they have this in the wedding ceremony uh, and so we had that initial wedding ceremony moment that happens in the show. And then at the very end of the show, in the first iteration of it, um, we open up the doors to the basement. The sunlight comes pouring in. Tristan and Isolde each drink from this cup and pass it down to Romeo and Juliet, who drink from the cup. And two, two people from the audience who have been pulled forward are then handed the cup and invited to also drink from it to like have these ripples through time of like, this idea of star-crossed lovers being something that continually happens again and again and again. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the second iteration, um, when we, when we filled out Tristan and Isolde's story more, and this is something that Shana really pushed for because she was our, uh, Isolde the first year and then came on the second time more as a writer, uh, she really advocated for their story being more full and independent, which was amazing because it ended up having, making that so much richer. Uh, so they had entire tracks that weren't necessarily dependent on each other. And Tristan and all weren't like ghosts pushing them together, but, but more echoes of seeing how these things, these same sort of things can happen again and again. 
um, but they weren't directly interacting with Romeo and Juliet in any way in that second version of it, which, yeah, allowed us to do a lot more with those characters. And the title, Farewell My Friend, actually comes from their story because they call each other my friend, which I find really beautiful, like to call someone you love my friend, like that feels so much more intimate than calling someone a love or a lover, like, because it feels like a, like a, a deeper connection. Hmm. Um, and yeah, that's sort of like their final words to each other is farewell, my friend. You talk a little bit about the physical production and it must be interesting to to write and co-direct a, a show for for a space that already exists. I mean, how much is what you're uh, writing and creating based on what already is in the space? How do you balance between what the space is and the story you want to tell? I always approach making any sort of site-specific work as being very much in response to the space. Um, so we did a lot of hunting for spaces. We saw just oodles and oodles of spaces and absolutely fell in love with um, Epworth Church, which is tragically now being turned into condos um, because that's what happens with the world. Cool, beautiful spaces get turned into condos. So, yeah, we were looking for spaces specifically for this show and really fell in love with this building. Uh, And basically, when we were thinking about it, we had already at that point, because I said we started working on like this, this sort of the script and the breakdown of what it is um, earlier. So as we were sitting down with what script we had, we started to sort of chunk out like, okay, what are the different locations that are happening? Where can we put things like, okay, if we have like, there's a lot of scenes that happen on the street. Great, we've got this giant sanctuary with these alleyways that could become roads. That could be our, our the streets of Mantua. Okay, this little chapel, there's a bunch of scenes that happen in Juliet's room and the little chapel leads up into the, the choir loft in the big sanctuary. So that gives us a balcony where we can actually follow Juliet from her bedroom up onto the balcony and see Romeo down like, you know, on street level, quote unquote, in the sanctuary. So finding places where the story fits. And then once we have those big posts of like, okay, this um, was meant to be the entryway of the church. We had people enter through the side, but we turned that entryway into the friar's cell because it had all this kind of like these weird windows and places that we were like, oh, you could totally make a weird creepy tincture in here. So we were looking at what are the spaces, how do they relate to each other, and then figuring out where other things fit. So there would be things like, okay, well, we want this to be the entry space, but then we also want to have the Capulet party in here later. So how does that space transform um, within the course of our show? Um, And then we also knew with the basement. So there's a ground floor, there's the upper balcony space, and then there's the basement. And so we knew we wanted to have the final tomb scene be in the basement because, you know, what better space for a, you know, death scene in a tomb than a weird, creepy basement. Uh, and then, so as we were thinking about that, we then decided that that would also be where where Mantua was. And these, oh, the space had this amazing, these amazing sliding doors that went across 
the basement. So as Romeo is banished in Tamantua, the doors are slid and rolled open to reveal these stairs that no one has seen up until this point. Um, And we had coming from like the end of the hallway, this red light that sort of felt like a descent into hell because the whole like journey of Romeo in Mantua is sort of about his, his mental descent and like what gets him from the point of, oh my God, my friend Mercutio just died too. I need to kill myself. So descending into that hell with him, um, which was Mantua. So as we were like looking at the building, we're thinking about where are these things happening? Um, how do we make use of this space? How do we, you know, respond to the space rather than trying to like cover it up rather than trying to be like, oh no, we can't like have pews uh, because there aren't pews in the streets of Mantua. It's like, that's, you know, fine. There are pews in here. How do we use them? And so like finding ways to like choreograph fight scenes that happen across and through and in between the pews and like really getting to use this space in a really dynamic way. I wanted to ask, how do you, especially with an immersive production like this, how do you go into the process of rehearsing? Yeah, that is always the toughest question, right? (laughs) Um, We, on this production, we're just immensely spoiled in that we got to rehearse in the space mm-hmm. uh, which is so often not the case uh, so we were very very lucky that we were just able to rent the the space as rehearsal space and figure things out in situ um, in terms of like the space of it um, what we ended up doing in terms of like rehearsing the the piece is I, I mean, I think each day I spent about an, well, an hour or two figuring out what our schedule was going to be because it was mm-hmm. very intricate because it would be thinking about, okay, what scenes need to rehearse in what, which rooms and which actors are available. And in terms of like directing it, we had myself, uh, my collaborator, Matt, we had uh, our movement, director Melissa, we had our one-on-one director Andrew, we had our brilliant text coach Jack, and so like we would split up, you know, who's working with who and sort of assign things so that we could get the most out of our time in the building. And there was definitely points where we, (laughs) there was definitely points in the rehearsal process where I was sort of running between like three or four different rehearsals Mm -hmm. where I would go into a room with a group and say, um, okay, this is what's happening in this scene. Here are some signposts that we know we want to hit in the scene. And I'm going to be back in 20 minutes play. Um, So in order to get (laughs) to the point where we could, I could just like, because like I, I trust my cast implicitly. Like I cast people because they're smart makers. They're clever and interesting and creative and have good ideas. Like my perspective as a director is like you're you're just sort of like uh, guiding people along and trying to like keep things rolling and sparking inspiration. Like that's your job as a director is to spark inspiration in your collaborators and let them do what they are best at. Because why have brilliant people in the room? if they don't get to use their brilliance. 
at a certain point in order to generate that much content, you really have to just trust your team and trust that like they're good at what they do mm-hmm. and let them do their thing and, you know, be there to like give them guidance and feedback and also to like, to like uh, relate how things are going to sync up together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so much about just trusting your team. You said that you had a opinion about the Romeo and Juliet story coming into the process. <laughs> did, did working <laughs> on this production change how you felt about that story? Honestly, it, it definitely did like because i went in with this like uh i hate this story it's so dumb it's just about people falling in love and being stupid like i was very cynical going into it and i've really come to like really love this story and these characters and like the the different dynamics that are happening and like the complexity of it and that like they're like people are making like really hard decisions in a really short period of time. And I think that's something that was like really important to me to get across that feeling of, of they're just doing the best with what they've got in a really short period of time. Cause I think some productions I've seen have been like three and a half hours and dragged on forever. Mm-hmm. And our show is an hour and 15 minutes. Like that was something that was super important to me. I was like, this needs to feel like a roller coaster. Like you get the sort of like ramp up with like your entry into the space and little intros. And then it's like, once you've started, it just goes so fast that you're like, Oh my God, how do I, okay. Yep. That's just what we're going with. Cause like the entire plot of Romeo and Juliet, Juliet happens in the course of like, what, like five days. Like, it's fast. No, it's happening so fast. I don't even think it's five days. I think it's like three to four, maybe. Like it's very quick. Yeah, it's such a fast story that that you really like wouldn't have time to like have any like big big thoughts about it. So, so that basically giving the audience that feeling was important to me, and honestly made me like the story better. Um, and yeah, getting to know characters like like the nurse is an amazing character. I really love her. Like, and we had I think one of the best scenes in Farewell, My Friend was actually a one on one with the nurse that um, uh, our actor Becky made. Just just a heartbreaking thing. She yeah, she just um, had this beautiful scene that was completely silent. That was about the death of this you know this this child that that would have been Juliet's age if she was still alive and mm-hmm. things like that made me really love this story and connect to it and say, Oh, okay. I was definitely too quick to judge before. Um, and it's actually a really good, a really good story. We so. are a very pro nurse <laughs> podcast. We, are. we really are. She's such a cool character. Um, and one of the other favorite moments, so after this one-on-one with the nurse, I'm just going to totally like be a nurse love lover right now. Um, because we basically found this parallel between the nurse and Brangian, who is Isolt's sort of a handmade person. Basically, after this one-on-one with the nurse, there's this duet with Brangian and the nurse in this little stairwell. So like the stairwell that you would go up to the balcony go up to to get to the balcony it goes up even further and the nurse has this little nest area that is just her own little space and 
Brangian and the nurse have this incredible duet across this staircase. And it's one of the few moments when characters from these two different stories have any sort of relationship to each other, like mm-hmm. actually interact with one another. And it's just a, a this movement piece that was created by the two actors, Andrew, our one-on-one director. It's basically them going, what the fuck do we do? <laughs> you know, they both are in this situation where like this person I really care about, either Juliet or Isolde, is going through shit and I don't know what to do. I'm torn. I don't know if I should like try to pull her away from this or if I should try to help her be with the person she loves. Um, in this like internal dilemma that both of these women are having in these two stories, they actually get to play off of each other and essentially in their mind, the other person is, you know, they're Isolde or they're Juliet that they're trying to figure out what to do with. Um, and it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And it's just, it's just for this one little audience member and they get like the best part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to wrap up in a minute, but uh, any final thoughts about, about the process and, and working on it? And uh, I, I assume it's a, it's a, it's set in time. There's not like plans to bring it back ever again. Um, yeah, no, I think, even being able to do that second year and build out those stories more was, was such, um, such a treat. Um, like the script definitely still exists. Uh, you know, it's, it's in a Google doc. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely something that while I would love to explore again, there aren't any plans for it to come back, especially as this space is now being converted into condos. Mm. Um, so much of that show depended on that space. It was so in conversation with the building that it would be really hard to put it up anywhere else. But I, yeah, I do think it's a cool show. It was a really incredible project to work on. I feel very lucky that I got to do this and collaborate with all these amazing people. Well, and I imagine that immersive theater is less COVID friendly. <laughs> Yes, that is, um, well, it could go either way Mm -hmm. in that, like, you're not necessarily like jammed sitting, you know, like three inches from the person next to you audience wise, but also there is like the interactivity of being closer to the actors and like having like props and stuff that are handled. Like I do think, I think immersive theater has more potential to be COVID friendly. Um, in that it is already thinking about how people exist in space in a different way. Arlo, thank you for joining us. Yeah, this has been been lovely. Do you have anything to promote? We can link your website in the description, which has pictures of Farrell, my friend. Um, Anything else though? Um, I am working currently as a freelance maker. Um, so I work with a couple of different companies here in London and one in New York. Um, so yeah, nothing specific at the moment, a couple of projects that might be coming up, but I cannot talk about yet. Secret projects. Secret projects. Always secret projects. So yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely check out my website, keep an eye on it and uh, you'll know what I'm up to. I dreamt a dream tonight, and so did I. What was 
is yours. The dreamers often lie in bed asleep while they do dream things true. Oh, then I see Queen Mab have been with you. She is the fairy's midwife. Her traces of the smallest spider web rigged from the lazy finger of a maid in the state she gallops night by night. Ladies' lips who straight on kisses dream, then he dreams of another benefice. Sometimes she driveth o'er soldier's neck, and then he dreams of cutting. Foreign throat strums in his ear, at which he starts and wakes, and being thus frightened, swears a prayer or two and sleeps again. This is she. This is she. So that was a song from Bear a Pop Opera, which is. I was going to say is a musical, but I guess it's a pop opera, whatever that means. A popra. A popra. I it, think this is more like a rock opera than anything mm-hmm. else. Could I mean, they didn't call it a rock opera. That That is true. I mean, by that time in like, because this musical was made in 2000s, by that time, rock music was kind of the pops was also still the pop sound. I mean, now you rarely hear like, rock songs that like make the pop charts but back then like you had like your blink 182s all like the pop rock bands before the emo band phase of the of the mid 2000s and this very much is a product of the early 2000s i think the first uh production of bear pop opera was in the year 2000 mm-hmm. and listening to it in 2022 there's things about it that feel a little dated <laughs> I mean, there's some things we just don't say anymore, you know, or or depict on stage. There's a sassy black lady in the show um, who at one point tells one of our young gay male protagonists, because it's gay, we'll get there, um, that there is a black woman in the soul of every gay man. <laughs> Which, like, is a thing we were saying in the early 2000s, for sure. Like, people were making that joke. Oh, for sure. Uh, and we do not make that joke anymore because we do not. It's a little offensive. Cultural appropriation. Right. Welcome to the cultural appropriation episode of <laughs> If the Shoe Fits. Oh, God. Um, not uh, not quite so much. But anyway, what is Bear a Pop Opera? I'm so glad you asked. Bear a Pop Opera. So again, debuted in the early 2000s, originally in LA, then ran off Broadway had many productions around the world, got redone in the early 2010s as a new musical that premiered off-Broadway. So we start at St. Cecilia's boarding school. We start out with this number that's trying to set the tone for everything that's going to happen. It's a Catholic school, so we get this, like, start with a sermon Christian thing, and then it goes into a, like, rock pop thing, and then there's this sort of, like, tongue-in-cheek church songs about the fact that uh, one of the students, one of the main characters, uh, Peter, is secretly gay and his, has this fantasy about the whole school finding out he's gay and then turning on him. Um, a lot of like Christian angst about homosexuality. Uh, and then also there's this moment in the middle of the first song where the scene shifts to a funeral and he has this vision of a funeral um, that will occur at the end of the play. 
so the main character is is this boy peter uh who is gay and repressed but not that repressed um and is dating his roommate jason dating is a strong word um they're in love but they haven't said it basically right Um, and they're sleeping together who is like more repressed and there are romeo and juliet i think that peter is the romeo and jason is the juliet I think that Jason is the Romeo and Peter is the Juliet. The reason that I think that Peter is Romeo and Jason is Juliet, aside from the J name, um, is that I think that Romeo is the main character of Romeo and Juliet. And I think that Peter is the main character of Bear. And furthermore, Juliet is the person in the narrative who has another potential romantic match, which Jason absolutely does uh, in ivy um and peter does not okay see i think Mm -hmm. jason is romeo because a lot of the situations that jason gets himself into in 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 the musical in the opera the popera Mm -hmm. if you will um i wouldn't say they are similar like they have like some similarities to Romeo in in a way. I, I think also because Romeo himself gets into many situations, you know, the whole thing with Mercutio and Tybalt and such. I, I think Peter to me seems a more like in the same way of Juliet, things just happen to her. Mm-hmm. Whereas Romeo in the play really causes like and drives forth the action of the play. And I feel that similarly with this, where things kind of just happen to Peter. I think there's a couple things he drives forward. I think the big thing that, well, he tries to drive forward, like Jason coming with him for spring break and coming out to his mom. And mm-hmm. ultimately he does, like ultimately he does come out to his mom. Does he? Yeah. At the very end? No, no, no! In this, in the one song, he doesn't really come out in that song. I mean, she get, she knows though, like totally. But he doesn't it, actually successfully come out. It, it's pretty much a coming out, <laughs> right? And besides that, I, I think Peter. I mean, maybe the whole like the scene of "Are you there?" when he's talking to Matt. But besides that, like, he, things just kind of happen to Peter. Whereas Jason does a lot of shit in this show. And I would argue that this show is more about Jason than Peter. Interesting. I think they both have character arcs for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, Let's get more into the plot. I think one of the things that I like about Bear is that, um, and this is what I've appreciated about it when I was younger and listening to it, is that it deals with uh, like six main characters and you, you know, they all get moments in the spotlight and you sort of understand all of their motivations fairly well, mm-hmm. which is kind of unusual for a musical. Right. Um, it feels more like, like a falsettos or Carolina change kind of show where it's like, here's our, here's our cast. And we're just going to tell this very small story. And I like that about it. I like that it, that's just about these this small number of people and how they're in orbit of each other. Yeah. So the main characters are Peter and Jason, who are lovers. 
Right. Also um, roommates. And roommates. Peter mm-hmm. is the more sensitive, um, more comfortable with his sexuality one. Jason is, is kind of the popular one. Mm-hmm. Good grades, uh, handsome, repressed. He has a twin sister named Nadia, who mm-hmm. is uh, sardonic, uh, but supportive. There's a popular girl named Ivy who wants to get with Jason. Right. There is a boy named Matt um, who wants to get with Ivy and is a little jealous that she's paying attention to Jason. We have uh, the drama teacher, Sister Chantel. Mm-hmm. And that, and I mean, and that's basically it. I mean, at that, at that point, you're really getting into supporting cast. Sister yeah. Chantel has two songs, so I guess she's main cast, but you know, there's a, there's a priest and there's a drug dealer in the school. And that's, I mean, that's kind of it, right? That's, that's yeah. the characters. There's ensemble high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, that's, that's all we've mm-hmm. got. The whole story kicks off with, uh, we have a good healthy relationship song, just so you know that, that things will get worse later. They're very cute. You and I, um, mm-hmm. that establishes the Peter Jason relationship. Although Peter uh, has some anxieties about it because it's a very secret relationship. And he also suggests that Jason might audition for the school play, which is Romeo and Juliet. And guess who gets Romeo? It's Jason. This is just Shakespeare in love, but gay. Shakespeare in love, but gay. And set at a Catholic boarding school. Right. Yeah. Ivy also gets Juliet. Mm Mm-hmm. Nadia gets the nurse. Right. And she's uh, kind of upset about it. And Peter gets Mercutio. Because Sister Chantel knows that he's gay, I think. <laughs> and as we know, Mercutio is gay. Right. I mean, truly. So, I mean, so the first act, there's two big, like, misbehaving nights. They all bar the church van and go to a rave um uh and get high with the help of the drug dealer in school and peter wants to like dance with jason and jason like pulls him outside they argue about whether or not they should come out at all peter wants to jason doesn't Um, right they kiss they kiss matt sees them then uh matt throws a birthday party for ivy um which he shows up too drunk already Peter has too many pop brownies, not realizing that they're pop brownies. Um, and it's like publicly flirting with Jason and Jason in order to save face sleeps with Ivy. Um, or, or I think they just kiss at that point. At the party? At the party, I think they just kiss. At the party, they just kiss. Yeah. And then Matt and Peter uh, end up drunk on a rooftop, crossfaded, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter confesses that he's in love with Jason. And then um, after um, Matt falls asleep, he's visited by the Virgin Mary in a dream sequence as portrayed by Sister Chantel, uh, who tells him that he needs to come out to his mother. And so he was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Right. And then he, so he tries to convince Jason to come home with him for spring break so they can come out to his parents. And Jason is scared of how his parents will react if they find out that he's gay. and. He feels like he might get beat up and disowned, so he doesn't want to come out, which is fair. And he breaks up with Peter and sleeps with Ivy, and that ends the first act. Right. Which is very Spring Awakening. Very Spring Awakening. Very, very Spring Awakening. 
And then we open the second act, very Mamma Mia style, with a dream sequence, a nightmare sequence. Is that how the second act of Mamma Mia opens? It does. <laughs> Whose dream sequence? Sophie's. So we have a dream sequence where uh, P- it's Peter and Jason's wedding, but uh-oh, it turns into Jason and Ivy's wedding. Uh, an and entirely then- skippable song. Entirely skippable song. Which is because, what you need at the beginning of a second act, of course. Right. And then the next morning, um, Jason becomes valedictorian. And uh, Matt comes up. in second. Yeah, Matt comes in second again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ivy says that he love she loves Jason. And uh, Jason's like, oh, what you're describing to me is how I think about Peter. I'm breaking up with you. So that happens. Peter calls his mother to come out. Uh, she kind of tiptoes around it. Really, right. she brushes him off. She's like, "I can't talk right now." And then she has a song. Oh, I guess she's she's another significant character. She has a song about not knowing how to process it and how to deal with it. But that she loves her son right. and like her, her love is stronger. Yeah. yeah, Peter has like the good luck to have everyone in his immediate circle be fairly supportive. And Jason has the opposite luck, basically. Mm-hmm. With the exception of Nadia, who's very supportive. Right. Then we have another rehearsal scene where I think Peter this is adorable. Jason... Yes, this is very adorable. Because Ivy's been missing rehearsals. We don't know why. Hint, hint. We'll get there. Her understudy for the role of Juliet is not up on her lines. So Peter has to step in and run Juliet's lines for the Pilgrim's Hand scene, which is very lovely and intimate. Uh, but not so fast. Ivy appears at the end of rehearsal and she's like, I need to talk to you, Jason. We need to have a conversation. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Meanwhile, Sister Chantel is like, hey, Peter, we need to have a conversation. You're a gay. <laughs> and that's good. Good for you. And that's okay. And she gets a great song. Ivy reveals to Nadia that she is pregnant with Jason's child. Jason uh, is in the rehearsal room trying to rehearse his valedictorian speech. And Ivy's like, you didn't visit me. And I have to tell you that you're pregnant now. And everybody else is there because they were also going to rehearse for Romeo and Juliet. And Matt uh, exposes the relationship between Peter and Jason. Uh, Much consternation, alarm bells, scaling ladders. But then Jason is like, I have nowhere else to go to. So he goes to confession uh, where the priest is basically being like, deny your feelings. Don't be gay. No. Have you tried not? Have Um, you tried not? Then it's the night of the show. Yeah. (laughs) And everyone, despite like the revelations is just like, I guess we're just going to do the show now. Right. Uh, And Jason gets drugs from the drugs deal from the drugs dealer. <laughs> you can tell that I'm really cool and I know how to get drugs. <laughs> Jason gets drugs from the drug dealer and uh, ODs live on stage. Yes. yes. Um, well, well, before that, he's like, he asked Peter to run away with him. Oh, and- yeah. How could I forget that they have like a reconciliation moment and Peter think- says they can't run away together, but they have right. a beautiful like, we love each other moment. Mm-hmm. which is interesting because like structurally in Romeo and Juliet they don't get like if we consider the exile to be Peter and Jason's breakup um, 
they don't have another moment where they can tell each other that they love each other uh, mm -hmm. before they die. Uh, and I like in Barry that they do get a moment where they get to express their feelings finally. Yeah, it's really nice. Mm -hmm. um, but then Jason ODs. During the uh, Queen Mab speech, too. No, 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 no. He begins to trip during the Queen Mab speech, and then he ODs in the following scene at the masquerade party uh, and dies in Jason's arms. <laughs> oh, sad. Um, and then we see his funeral, like we saw at the beginning. Um, Peter survives at the end of the show. Everyone reflects on how they how they could have done better, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it ends sad. It ends sad. It's interesting because um, the recording that's on Spotify, well, one of the actors in it is Matt Doyle, and he was also in uh, a movie with a pretty similar idea called Private Romeo, um, mm -hmm. which is about boys at a Catholic boarding school um, doing Romeo and Juliet, and two boys from the Catholic boarding school being in love and, and having the Romeo and Juliet story happen to them. Um, it's a movie that I've seen. And what's interesting about this and Bear is that it feels like part of the message is to like go to the audience and be like, you all stop being homophobic now. Like um, mm -hmm. learn from, from the mistakes you see before you. And, you know, I don't know who, I don't know which homophobes were going to see a musical about gay teens in the early two thousands, but I hope they learned their lesson. I mean, the early, I mean, the late nineties and early two thousands was just kind of, it was a it was a weird time to mm -hmm. be gay and just to be uh, queer in general. I mean, around that time, you have Ellen coming out, you have Will and Grace being out, and people like enjoying those shows. And people, you know, El Ellen would soon be celebrated because of her talk show. So coming up, so like, but at the same time, there was also just a lot of homophobia still. So it was totally. definitely like a gray area. A gray area. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. on one, because, well, because on one hand you have like the, the celebrated comedian and the celebrated show. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, some celebrated artists that are like open, openly queer and like releasing openly queer music and being celebrated for it. But also at the same time, you have, you know, uh, I mean, it's an incredibly homophobic time. It's yeah, it's an incredibly homophobic time. So, like, you have in media things seemingly becoming more accepted, and then really in the real world, it's just a little bit more complicated. And so, Bear kind of is kind of comes from that time where, on one hand there's so much applause and on the other hand there's just so much hate still well and i guess my question is who is bear for you know i think that that this is you know it's a victim of being from the from the early 2000s i mean honestly written in the late 90s if it premiered in 2000 it's it's not the sort of story that we're telling about queer people now certainly and i think the, part of the reason for that is that partially because of things like bear a queer audience said I want to see stories about queer people who have happy endings and mm -hmm. don't die and stories that aren't coming out narratives. Well, yeah. I mean, now we're definitely saying that, but I think at the time there was definitely this feeling of we need to show people 
the struggles, you know, we Mm -hmm. need to show people that we are just like everybody else, but also like we go through a very tough time. We're still living in a very tough world. I think now we can definitely say like, yes, I would like to see more shows about queer joy and queer love and Mm -hmm. no, no more people dying at the end. But I think at that time, unfortunately, right. I mean, it's very unfortunate. We we kind of had to show that to be like, hey, like this is what your homophobia is doing. I mean, but what you're suggesting is that Bear is for a straight audience. I think that the like the use case of a homophobic person coming to see this musical is pretty slim. I think that's a that's a rare. Probably didn't happen that many times. Mm-hmm. I think the the show was made with the intent of possibly, you know changing the minds of people you know i i I think there probably was an intent of showing that unfortunately because of the medium that it is in it probably did not reach that audience well and it's funny this is also the rent era and rent is also a a show about queer people for straight people in some ways (laughs) right um and i you know i think that we can look at this as a mark of progress that we are continuing to move past that mentality and that mindset um when we produce theater but the thing is that because theater reaches a a significant queer audience even when shows like rent and bear are written with one audience in mind queer people still see themselves in those stories right like a baby college me knew this score very well this cast recording and now look at you now look at me a podcaster <laughs> and I'm glad that this isn't all there is anymore. I'm glad right. that we have, you know, uh, more than crumbs, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Because, I, you know, I don't think it's, it's hard to judge something from the 2000s today. I don't think it's the kind of queer story I would want told right now. There's some talks about a movie adaptation that was in the works for this about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you have to change it a lot, I feel like, um, to bring it up to uh, modern standards of queer representation. I will say, hearing this show, I am interested to see how like someone would try to modernize this. I think that would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm like, we can make this story trans, too. Let's make it trans. <laughs> I love that this is our like sexuality-diverse uh, Romeo and Juliet for the season. You're like, we can go further. <laughs> We can always go further. We can. I think for the adaptations of Romeo and Juliet, we're looking at, this has got to be the one, at least so far, which is intentionally a Romeo and Juliet story and also strays the most from the story structure of Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. It's not a beat-for-beat Lion King 2 (laughs) story where everything fits neatly. There's not really, you know, some of the, some of the characters aren't there. A lot of the beats, you know, it really does its own high school drama soap opera thing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I still believe what I was saying before, which is that bear is a sort of a unique moment um, in the Romeo and Juliet story. It's also the first one we've seen where only one of them dies, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. So far, so far. And you know, what are the two households? What is the feud? They're not, they're not really from, you know, warring factions. 
in any sense. They're not from different groups. They're kind of from the same group um, in this story. They're both from the same church school. I Maybe you could see the feud as being homophobia in the church. Um, but even so, you don't have a lot of the same like battles taking place. Um, and I'm not sure that like the feud ends, quote unquote. You know, I think that like this group of people is going to be more cautious in the future. Uh, I guess my question is because we haven't like watched it, watched it. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see where Peter falls in because we know that Jason is popular. Mm-hmm. Where does Peter fall in line in terms of like the hierarchy of high school? I mean, I don't think it's like a nerds versus jocks thing though. I mean, it honestly could be, but there's not like warring factions. Like who are the other nerds who are fighting in the hallways with the popular kids? Like that's not really what's happening here. I mean, high school is a bloodbath. I mean, maybe, but that's not really what this story is telling. They seem fairly unified every time there's a, a social event. You know, they're all going to rehearsal together. They're all going to the party together. They're all going to the rave together. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's some kind of like class divisions and rankings that are happening socially, it doesn't show up in this show, I don't think. This is one of the first times that we've seen the romeo and juliet story expressed as a forbidden love story you know i mean i think that that element of it was what was being explored um for a couple decades there right like i suppose titanic is also doing forbidden love in some ways right no i i I, yeah this is definitely the first one where it's like forbidden forbidden love Mm -hmm. and i guess i like the idea of of being able to tell like the gay version of this story but i'm not sure what they would need to change for me to like this one more. I mean, I feel, I think if they just updated it, honestly. Mm -hmm. And what would that entail for you? I don't know. I think just like bringing in an aspect of social media that is definitely missing. Cause you can definitely tell like this was the two thousands where like everybody just hung out with each other and they had probably had to communicate through like AOL chats or or oh, they God. just talked at school or whatever. Or what I, I feel like there'd be more like an emphasis on them like texting each other or being on social media. Of course, this is also a Catholic school. So like I didn't go to Catholic school. So I don't know like what the parameters of Catholic school kids are to social media and stuff like that. I think my biggest note about it is that if it's, for queer people, because I think it can be a coming out story. I'm not offended by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's for queer people, then you need to give us some hope at the end. Mm. You know, you need to, to, I don't know if they both need to survive, right? I mean, I think I think we keep alluding to it, but I think at some point we're going to see a Romeo and Juliet where they both make it, those crazy kids, someday they'll make it. And, you know, the question then will be, is is that still this? Um, mm-hmm. Can you Could you do a bear where they both survive, where you get a happy ending where it's not so much about because Peter gets this great moment at the end, which feels like kind of the point of the whole piece where um, he goes to the priest who Peter took confession from and says, you know, he came to you when he was hurting, looking for sympathy uh, and you didn't give it to him. Yeah. And ignoring the fact that I don't know how Peter knows that Jason went to confession 
and got turned down because they weren't talking at that time. Um, <laughs> it feels like the whole show has been leading up to to this moment of of Peter getting to say "screw you" to the priest. Like that's the point. Um, and I think that there's a version of this story. I mean, it wouldn't be bare, right? The, it would be something else. But there's a version of this story where where Jason gets a support structure mm. um, and gets comes back from the brink of considering suicide. And Peter and Jason moved to San Francisco. I'm just going to do a fan fiction. Of, I'm going to rewrite the ending of of, um, of the end of this. They well, two to, things. They moved to a very gay city and they're, they <laughs> they are together into their 60s and they raise dogs. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, two things. Uh-huh. One, my rewrite would end as such. Jason still takes the drugs. He's still doing the, like the whole trip and stuff. Yeah. And then like at the end, Peter goes, Jason. And then just like rent, Jason wakes up like Mimi. <laughs> <laughs> right. And everything's fine. And everything's fine. But my, you- I mean, I, I guess my point is like in 2022, I don't feel like I need to learn a lesson about the homophobia of the church. Right. Um, and how it messes with people. I'm not saying it's not a valuable lesson. I don't know that I personally will. And, right. and I guess I guess we have to, just, you know, what is the function of tragedy um, in a story? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess my question is, and I think I've possibly posed this question before, and we'll definitely pose this question again. Is it more tragic that one of them survives? I think so. I as mean, opposed to, like, both of them dying? Right. And I feel like... Um, Bear doesn't deal with this all that well. No. It, I mean, it kind of takes the coward's way out because the time jumps you to the end of the semester and everyone reflecting on their actions. And graduating. And graduating. But Peter's going to need a lot of therapy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's not going to be the same person who is able to, like, love Jason in a in a fairly untroubled way. They're all going to need a lot of therapy. They're all going to need honest. a lot of therapy. Yeah, I think, I think one person surviving is definitely worse. Does Ivy have the kid? Like what? <laughs> right. Sort of unresolved. <laughs> like, and that's also kind of why I'm like, oh, Jason is definitely the Romeo because again, like his actions. Yeah. Like Romeo cause all these plot points to happen. Is the Romeo and Juliet story about the beautiful romantic vibes of like doomed naive lovers? Is it about people learning a lesson, so like a society learning a lesson about about unintended consequences of, of fighting over stupid things. Does the tragedy make the uh, romance all the sweeter, or does it make the aftermath more meaningful? Um, you mm. know, I think that's the question that every Romeo and Juliet has to answer. And I think Titanic says it makes the romance sweeter. And I think Bear says it makes the aftermath more meaningful mm. and at some point we're gonna have to find out what Nomeo and Juliet thinks about it all I guess <laughs> I'm very excited for that one <laughs> but that's not the next episode you can join us again in two weeks we'll be talking about Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet we're doing it we're going back to Leo we're going back to Leo he's back baby I've been waiting to do this one for a long time I love this movie I'm, I'm very excited to do this one. This could be our ever after. This could be. But until then, thank you for listening. And we'll see you then. See ya. Bam, 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 bam. Bam. <laughs>